So here we go. We're going to jump in here. Today's topic, of course, is the topic of love. And the key question for this week, for this sermon, for this sermon right here, is what does it mean to sacrificially and unconditionally love others? Both of the passages that we're going to look at this morning uh, address this. And even though the first passage that, that Evan Moore read had absolutely no mention of the word love in it, we're going to jump into that passage and unpack that. It had no mention of the word love in it, yet um, it, it has a great deal to do about love. And the second passage we're going to look in, it's out of 1 John. It's all, it's, it mentions love at every turn, uh, and so you'll get your dose of that. Um, both of these passages, both of these passages, as I marinated in them this week, I found to be incredibly hard-hitting. If we have a heart to receive it and to hear it, they're incredibly hard-hitting. But it's exciting because I think God wants to do something special and unique this morning with us, that he wants to say something that's really clear to us this morning. So before I begin, can we, would you just pray with me and we'll, we'll jump in. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you are a God of love, first and foremost. And so God, we need you. We don't, we have no hope of understanding your scripture, of knowing who you are, unless you first reach out to us. And so God, we want to make space for you this morning to speak to us. So would you ready our hearts and would you ready our minds to receive from your word this morning? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus taught in parables, and our passage out of Matthew is a parable. But he did this not only to reveal truth, but also to reveal the heart of the listener. How much would we pursue truth? And that's where this passage uh, goes. So if you want to jump in with me and join me, uh, we're looking at, it's titled as the parable of the unmerciful servant in my Bible, and that's in uh, Matthew 18, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 21 uh, onward to 35. Tina Turner wrote a song that has a lyric in it that says, what's love got to do, got to do with it? And that's what we're jumping in on this passage. You might be saying, this was all about the, you know, the wicked, the, the unmerciful servant. What has love got to do with it? But we're going to see uh, clearly here. So let's jump in. So the context of chapter 18 is quite fascinating out of Matthew. Uh, it seems like everything in chapter 18 is actually spoken from Jesus directly to his close disciples. And it actually begins um, with the disciples arguing about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom of God. I know, super mature, right? They've been with Jesus a while now, and they're wondering how, you know, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, in, in Jesus' kingdom. And then Jesus likens it to sort of mentions children, right? That unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then he talks about how do you handle sort of discipline or, or, or conflict? Or how do you restore a brother back or a sister back into your group once there's sort of been dissension? And then Peter rises up, and that's where we jump in in our passage. He rises up and he asks a very, and he's, I feel like he's being a little bit cheeky here, but he asks a question of Jesus. And here we are in verse 21. This is what he says. It says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. Now, in Jewish culture, there was a, a Jewish precedent that if you forgave someone three times, that was enough to show a forgiving spirit. 
That if they sinned against you again a fourth time, that you had every right to withhold forgiveness or to not engage because you've already demonstrated a forgiving spirit. Okay? And Peter's asking Jesus, I think he's being a bit cheeky here because, you know, seven is this number of, of, of perfection or, or more closely it's this number of completion. And so Peter's sort of saying, is it more than, you know, more than just three? Is it, is it seven times that I ought to forgive um, when someone sins against me? Not a question unlike what we would ask. Have you ever felt taken advantage of? Or like someone has sort of exploited your generosity? Or that you've communicated to someone about something that they do that really irks you and and hurts you, and yet they persist on doing it? And they persist on saying sorry, and you, you feel like you're constantly in this place of being hurt and having to extend forgiveness, and you're kind of wondering, like, where's the line? When is when is enough enough that I can say no more, that the, I can turn off the tap of forgiveness. Well, that's the question that Peter is asking. Where's the line? And here's what Jesus responds. He says, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or depending on your translation, 70 times seven or 77 times. You see, it's not seven times, but actually what the intent of what Jesus is saying here is it's countless times. The number of times doesn't actually matter. Jesus is saying there actually is no line, no rule, no principle regarding forgiveness. What? What are you saying, Jesus? Well, Jesus knows that we'd have questions, so he gave us a parable to illustrate. And here he starts. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts with servants. Keep in mind, kingdom of heaven. He's saying this is what, not what the worldly kingdoms are like. He's saying this is what heavenly kingdom is like. This is what the rule and reign of God looks like. It's like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants, and he began with the settlement. A man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. A talent. Now, commentaries are sort of like a little bit all over the map here, but they all agree on one thing, that this was an exorbitant amount. Uh, Some translations, the word there is actually like talent, so it's 10,000 talents. And it seems that a talent of gold would represent about 20 years of day labor wages. 20, a talent. And there's 10,000 of these talents. 10,000, 20 years, whoa. Like it's an exorbitant amount. So it could, you know, some would say like it's $2.5 billion or more than that. But the point is that Jesus is using using hyperbole there, here. He's exaggerating and using a huge thing to kind of grab our attention to to know that this is an exorbitant amount of of money. So listeners would have heard Jesus say this and been like, that's crazy, Jesus, that's a crazy amount of money. Where are you going with this story? That's a crazy amount of story, money. Now, something in these verses that might have caught your attention is that the king, in the guy's not being able to pay, sells not only him, but his wife and children into slavery or puts them in prison until they can pay. Now, we, we're bothered by this. This doesn't seem like a good practice. 
But it was very, very, very common in first century. In fact, it was an important part of the economy back then, that when you had bills or you couldn't make payments or you had a rough string of luck, that your option was, it's sort of like um, first century, it's the first century bankruptcy equivalency, is that you would just sell yourself into slavery and work it off. Okay, and it's not a, not a slavery that's sort of equated with a racism in terms of how we hear the word slavery today, but it's sort of like this uh, important component to the economic practice. But did you catch that he, when everything was sold of his and him and his whole family is sold into slavery or into prison, it doesn't cover the cost. His net worth doesn't even come close to covering this. It's still an exorbitant amount. And I feel like that perhaps this is like a little like indication that there's something a little bit off with this servant. If we, if we read between the lines, because say I borrowed a million dollars from the bank, and I took that million dollars and I invested it, you know, maybe stocks that pay dividends, bonds, um, or I inv- invested in property, hoping to play the real estate game or whatever, and then all of a sudden in two years, I'm called into account to give an account for you know, that stuff and to settle that account, um, that I could liquidate everything I've bought, return, bring all the money. And the hope is, if I've been a good manager of the money and I've had a decent string of good luck, that I would have more than a million dollars, right? Anyone want to lend me a million dollars just to put this to the test? I didn't think so. Anyways, all right, that's, that's, that's how it would work, that maybe I could actually pay off my million dollar debt with the interest and I'd still, have, I'd still be maybe a wealthy man at the end of it. But in this servant's case, keep in mind, that's not the situation. It's an exorbitant amount of money that even his net worth isn't even able to cover. Like if you were selling uh, Drinnens off into slavery for day labor, it would take my whole family, all six of us, uh, 33,333 years to pay off this debt. Like it's an exorbitant amount. Anyways, here we go. We jump into verse 26 now. It says, At this the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. And the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Please don't miss what happened here. The servant says, Please be patient. What is he asking for? Is he asking for forgiveness? Nope. He's asking for patience. Interesting. So that he can pay back everything. To me, this is another clue that there's something wrong with this servant. He still thinks that he can pay back that sum of money. That exorbitant amount. He wants patience so that he can work it and pay it back. He's still confident in his ability to return the debt that's owed. But the king, the wise king, the benevolent king, takes pity on him. He cancels the debt. He wipes it clean and lets him go. He begged for patience and he got forgiveness. You see, we need to pause here and hear this because it contrasts what happened next. Don't forget the enormity of the debt. Who did the debt cost? If the master forgave the servant's debt, who did the debt cost? The king, right? He he lent the money out, and that money has disappeared, and he's just forgiven that debt. So he's not getting that money back. 
So let's make that connection that the enormity of the debt is not just wiped clean like it's not kind of like how our economics works now where we just print more money and, you know, everything will be okay. Like, it's not like, like this cost somebody. This king was out a boatload of money. It cost him. Let's not forget that. It cost the king to forgive this debt. Here we go. We jump in um, to verse 28 here. But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins and grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. Oh my goodness. Here's another clue. This is the obvious clue that there's something wrong with this servant. Am I right? He grabs someone who owes him a much smaller debt, begins to choke him, and wants it. Right after receiving mercy, he goes and wreaks judgment, demanding, wanting to settle the account with another servant. Again, scholars are a little bit sort of all over the map in terms of what this is, but it, it's not that this wasn't nothing. You know, maybe in around, if I use the same math as I used before, it's probably like $4,000. So it's, it's, an, it's an amount of money that's worth having paid back to you. Why would a servant act like this? Perhaps he didn't really feel like he was forgiven. In his heart, maybe he still owed the debt in his own mind. Therefore, he needed the money. And perhaps, if you read between the lines, perhaps it's kind of like what we do, that we sort of rationalize it a little bit. Maybe he went from there and said, that was a super awkward meeting with that king. I'm really glad to have escaped with my life. But it's because people haven't paid back what's owed to me that I wasn't able to meet that debt. And I'm not going to let that happen again. So he's calling in his own debts. Well, when you know this fellow servant falls on his knees and he begs of this man, and note this, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Don't you note that it's the exact same phrase that this servant used with the king that this other servant now is using with him? Wow. Jesus knows how to tell a story because he's making a point here. This should be a tip-off. This is divine coincidence. And then he answers in verse 30. He says, it says that, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. Zero pity. Tosses him in jail. This is crazy. At this point, we should be upset. We should be angry. If we're really reading this parable and entering into it, we should be upset. Like, what is going on here? Dude, what is going on in your head that you would act like this? After receiving pity and after receiving grace and forgiveness for the enormity of your debt, that you would have the audacity to pursue somebody who has a much smaller debt and withhold pity on him. What is going on in your mind? Verse 31, Jesus knows that we should be outraged at this. In verse 31, as the parable goes, it says, When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. So now that I've got you all in an uproar, and you're all outraged, as you rightfully should be, I want to push back a little bit on this. Can I ask you a question? Why are you outraged at this? Was the servant wrong to demand his debt be paid back to him? No. 
He wasn't. Was the king wrong to want to settle his debt in the first place? No, 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 no. We understand that that's how, that's how it works when you borrow money, right? You're in servitude to the lender. And that if they call in their account, you're held accountable. You have that uh, access to the finances, and it's, and it's yours to use as you will, but you're at, you're at their mercy. So, so let's, be, let's be clear about what we're upset about here. He had every right to go and demand what was given back to him. That $4,000, those silver coins. So what are we so upset about? My suggestion is, is that we're mad at the, at the hypocrisy of it, right? That he can, he can receive grace and forgiveness from someone else when it suits him and helps him, but he's reluctant to extend that to anybody else. Now we're getting somewhere. He asked for patience and got mercy, but would not extend the same courtesy to his fellow servant. There is something wrong with this servant. I would make it this suggestion. I would suggest that this servant, if I'm reading between the lines a little bit on this parable, he's operating according to the old paradigm. He still thinks that he's able to pay back the money that he's owed, that he's already been forgiven. Though he's been forgiven the debt, he has not learned the lesson. While he's experienced forgiveness, he was not impacted by it. He was not, he did not embrace the new paradigm. Perhaps there's some evidence of this. Let's flesh this out in in the later verses. 32 to 34. Then the master, so this is the king, Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant. Okay, I just want to make a mental note. You to make a mental note. You know how your Bible probably labels it as the parable of the unmerciful servant? Doesn't it kind of water it down a little bit? Because in this version, the master calls him the wicked servant. Okay, we just want to make note of that. I just think that's kind of interesting. He said to him, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailer to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Um, By his question, there seems to be an unspoken expectation of a new paradigm here. But the old paradigm is, yeah, it's every, if you lend someone money, you have every right to call in that debt. And you have every right to enslave that person or put them into prison until sell their family and everything they own so that they, they can pay it back to you. The king had that right and this servant had that right. But Jesus is spinning this parable differently in saying it's not about the rules or the way things work. But the expectation here is that as this man was showing mercy and forgiveness, that the expectation that he would then go from there and extend mercy and forgiveness to others. That's the new paradigm. That's the new paradigm. By his question, there seems to be an unspoken expectation that the servant would be like his king, operating like him under a new paradigm, set apart from the old. Something has shifted here. You see, but in this too, do you notice how, I just think this is so crazy. Have you noticed how 
He comes to this moment of reckoning with the master again, where the master asks him a pointed question. Shouldn't you have had fellow, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? Silence. There's no answer there. Then, in the in anger, his master hands him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owned. Okay, I'm going to... What was Peter's original question? Remember, Peter's question had to do with how many times, right? We established Peter's curious about where the line is. And he says seven times, and Jesus said, no, no, 77 times, saying there's endless forgiveness given, correct? This, what's going on in this wicked, like this servant? Like, he's face to face with the master. He realizes what he's just done. But he doesn't give any reply. And, and here's the thing. I think he's still operating under the old paradigm. I think he knows that he deserves what he's going to get. Because he realizes that he didn't have mercy when so much mercy was shown towards him. And I think there's silence here. Because he knows he's done wrong. But why is he wicked? I think it's because he still thinks he could pay it back. He's getting, he's getting the punishment for the old paradigm. And he thinks he's justified in that. It's what he deserves. Can I, can I, can I step out of here for a second and just go, what do you think would have happened if in Jesus' parable, this guy would have been... This foolish servant, unmerciful servant, if he'd asked for forgiveness again. Think about that. How would this story have gone if he'd have begged for forgiveness again? He'd have gotten it. He'd have received it. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not a line. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't outwork the grace. He didn't outwork mercy that was going to be extended to him. He just never asked for it. He didn't want to operate according to the new paradigm. And for that, the master calls him wicked and said, there's nothing I can do here. If you, if you won't realize and you won't humble yourself and you won't ask for it, then there's not, I can't give it unless you ask for it. And so this servant in the parable gets the punishment that he knew he deserved for his wrongs. Crazy. Here's the ticket. The old paradigm will keep you from asking for forgiveness and instead request more time to earn it yourself. That's what the old paradigm will do. We'll keep asking you for patience and more time so that you can get it right on your own. Jesus is saying it's a dead paradigm. The law was never able to save anybody. Paul writes about that in his letters, that the law exists to make us aware of the reality of our imperfection and our sin. But Jesus came to show us a new paradigm. A new paradigm. And here's the kicker. Verse 35 here. Jesus says, as a summary of this parable, he says, this is how 
My heavenly Father will treat each of you, he's speaking to his disciples, who have just fought about who's the greatest, who've just wondered how someone can be rectified and back into the group and ask this question about forgiveness. This is how my Father in heaven will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This lays out the parable fairly clearly that God is king, we are his servants. He has every right to request the, the debt that, that, that he's lent to us. He has forgiven us an, ignore, an exorbitant amount of debt, one that we could never have gotten out, never gotten away with paying on our own. But we have loved like that wicked servant. We have turned around and demanded what we thought was owed to us. As God has forgiven us an unpayable debt, the expectation is that we too should be so moved by his unparalleled generosity and we should aspire to be like him and to live under this new paradigm and forgive from the heart. It is a heart matter. The king took pity and went over and above to do what the servant was asking. If we are struggling to forgive from the heart, we have God as our example to refresh our memories. The new paradigm of love is greater than the old paradigm of law. I'd like to invite you to jump over to 1 John, and we're going to move very quickly through this. Um, over in 1 John, it sort of, it rounds out this thing where I feel like in this parable of the, of the wicked or the unmerciful servant, we sort of see this, this old paradigm and this, and this new paradigm. But what is this new paradigm? How is that sort of affirmed in the New Testament? Well, I think 1 John does a great job for this. We're going to just jump in here. Um, and I really feel like this passage of Scripture for us uh, outlines some lessons on love, some teaching on what love is. But then it also gets to, to the heart of sort of like what I think is actually like three action steps that if, if you don't want to be the wicked, um, unmerciful servant, these are things that you're going, to want to, you're going to want to grasp, you're going to want to have in your life. So here we go. It's fairly straightforward. Uh, John wants us to understand uh, what it is that inspires our love for one another. That's kind of the direction that First John has been meandering through. And he'll begin with lessons on love and then he'll give some advice on, on, on learning to love. Um, here we go. Verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another. There we go. The first scriptural reference of love uh, on a topic on love in church is, is here at this junction in the service. Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Pastoral letter here. Talking about love because they were bad at showing love, quite likely. He says that God is love. Keep in mind what he's not saying. He's not just saying that God is loving. Though God is loving, he's not just saying that God is loving. Because I can be loving, but I can be a lot of other things too. Okay? Just check in with my family. I can be loving, but I can be a lot of other things too. John is saying God is love. So it's not just an attribute of something he is, it's who he is. And he's not saying that love is just one of God's 
activities, that it's an activity of God to love people, though that is also true, that God's activity is loving. God is love. Love is the essence of his being, who he is. In this way, every single thing that God does is loving. Every action is loving. But we wouldn't say the reverse is true. We would say that God is love, but we wouldn't say that love is God. Right? That, that any display of affection is divine. Because love gets its definition from God, not the other way around. God has the corner on the love market because it's who he is. It's the word, the concept we use to describe him. You gotta understand, to understand love, you gotta know who God is. To define love without God, it's just vague, it's emotional, it's just a feeling. Um, but we can speak concretely as Christians about love because it's rooted in who God is. And we can speak concretely about who God is because we believe that God has revealed himself to us through the scriptures. He goes on to say in 9, he says, This is how God showed love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. One commentary put it this way, The ultimate act of God's self-revelation is found in his activity in Jesus Christ. This idea of showed his love is this idea of taking hidden things, formerly hidden things, and revealing them to us. That this is the greatest act of God's love is that he sent his son so that we might live through him. Incredible stuff. To have life is a favorite expression of John. But this life that God wants to give us we don't get it through the old paradigm. This life that John talks about costed something. And John's going to get to it here. It's a life that's only, only experienced through the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of your exorbitant debt that you could not pay off on your own. Enjoying God's love has a requirement, the renewal of a broken relationship that can only be accomplished by Jesus Christ. Christ's life, sacrifice, death, resurrection is, the in, is indisputable evidence of the Father's love. It is the high point of history. More clarification is needed, and these are actually our key verses uh, in 1 John here, uh, verse 10. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. John is saying very clearly what love is. is it's this act of Jesus coming. Those are the lessons on love. But what is it that we're supposed to do? Well, here we go, and I'll, I'll march through this uh, very quickly. Um, number 11. Dear friends, again, a pastoral letter since, highlight that word, everything that he said before, since is the tie together. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We ought to love one another. That's what John is saying. 
If God has so loved you, you also ought to love like him. Not something we haven't learned from that earlier parable. But then he goes on to say why. And here I'd, I'd like to kind of sort of spell out sort of three reasons. And I, I would sort of say like, love others because, and then sort of fill in the blanks. Verse 12, it says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Love others because it's a reflection of God's love in us. In fact, John says that it completes it. Isn't that an interesting concept? In my own experience, one of the richest treasures, the high points of my entire life as a human being on planet Earth, the richest thing I've ever experienced the thing that has caused me to, to weep and to cry and that stirs me and that I would never trade for anything in all the world is knowing that I'm loved by God and opening my heart to receive that. That moment when I recognized that I had an unpayable debt, that there was no way I was going to be able to cancel on my own, and I surrendered to the Lord saying, I got no hope without you. This has to be you. And he says that he's done it through the cross of Christ, that I have that right to make that request, that it still cost him something. It cost him the life of his son so that I could make that request and be granted it. Oh, it stirs my soul. It's the reason I get up every morning. It's the only thing I want my life to ever be about is this love of God because of what he's shown to me. But don't miss it. God's love isn't complete in me if I stop there. If I just enjoy the love of God on my own, John would say it's not complete. It's incomplete. Why? Because he says if you've experienced the love of God in such a manner you also ought to love others. And we've seen that reflected in forgiveness this morning in that parable. But it can give endless other expressions. In fact, there's an opportunity that as we surrender our lives to God, that, that every opportunity, every word, every contact with people, every motivation of our heart can be loving as an appreciation to him and, and gratefulness to him. John also says in these verses that this is how we see God among us. We can't see God with our physical eyes. But have you ever had a day where you were discouraged and bummed out? And you were actually thinking, I don't know where the love of God is right now. I'm feeling nothing but misery and frustration. And someone comes along and it's the smallest gesture of kindness or loving act or soft word. And it just touches your heart, we're like, oh, Lord, thank you. I just needed that. John's saying that it's our love in the way that we love one another. That is, we can see God among us then. Verse 13, it says, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit. Love others because God's spirit is powerfully alive in us as we obey and as we love. It's funny, I remember asking uh, 
probably over a year ago, being like, Lord, I don't really feel like I'm living a life in the Spirit. Like, I, I want to I have a, a more spiritually rich life, uh, to live a life by the Spirit. Would you show me what that means? And I felt like God was being silent for a long, long time, not, not taking my request seriously, because nothing seemed to be happening. In fact, I just kept seeming like I was failing at life, or messing up, or snapping at my children, or, you know, being rude to someone, or, or harboring resentment and bitterness in my heart. And then I feel like God showed me. He says, the Spirit's in you. The, the way of the Spirit is the way of love. And I have given you endless opportunities to exercise love. And I started to see things differently. Making this connection that the, the way of the life of the Spirit is, is the way of love in our lives. Verse 14. Here we go. So we love because it's God's Spirit powerfully alive in us as we obey in love. Verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges Jesus is the Son of God, God, loves, God lives in them and they in God. It's interesting that John brings it back to this notion of testifying about the gospel. As we testify and proclaim the gospel, the reality of God presses itself into our lives. We need to be reminded of that great debt that Jesus paid for us. And it's a sacrifice, it's a payment that continues, continues to be paid, right? That as I continue to fall short and mess up, that debt is continually always paid by Christ. And so as I return and ask for forgiveness, I know that I, I meet him at the cross and it's already looked after. We love others because they need to hear the gospel of how God sent his son to be the savior of the world. And we love others because we need to keep hearing it. And verse 16 is, is a fantastic sort of closing statement, even to, even to this, ser- this sermon and this message. And it says this, it says, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in God, whoever, or sorry, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So I want to challenge you this morning that as we've heard God's word, what is the appropriate response for you this morning in hearing a message like this? Well, I think for starters, for everyone, it's a recognition of this unpayable debt that we couldn't pay, that God paid for us, and expressing gratitude for that, receiving that, not being like the wicked servant and rushing off to conduct other manners of of business, but getting the new paradigm and allowing it to soak in, allowing it to touch our hearts. And for others, maybe... Like maybe you've never prayed that prayer or maybe you've never reached out to God in that way. But it's as simple as asking him, inviting him into your life to forgive your sins and show his love to you, that you're trusting in Jesus, his work in Jesus. But for Christians, it'd be a disservice to this message and what the scripture is saying if we left it at that. Let's aspire to live lives that are complete in God's love. And so, maybe there's somebody who you need to forgive and you're having a tough time with that. Remember how much you've been forgiven. Allow that to change your heart 
and then complete it by by extending forgiveness to somebody else. And sometimes it's just a decision. It's a choice that we make. And we walk into the feelings afterwards. So from our verses today, I would say forgive from the heart and two, become a distributor of God's love. Encountering God's love in such a way that we can say, I am committed to loving God and loving others. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word today. Thank you for your love and your grace. Thank you for the way that you are interested in in captivating and capturing our lives. And God, we humbly ask that you would change us from the inside out, even as we jump into more of this B series, Lord God, that, Lord, you would transform us, that we would look, think, act, and be more like Jesus each and every day. We thank you for your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen.